0: Welcome to JFK in the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for all the recent feedback. We just passed our 1,000th download this week on the series, and that's a really nice milestone as we're getting started. So thanks very much for all the listening you all are doing. I got quite a few comments from listeners last weekend, including a number of binge listeners. Folks that were new to the series listened to the first episode, and like a good book, I guess, they couldn't turn it off. I am gratified that so many folks are finding it interesting and that it's holding your attention. It's motivating me to speed up production of new episodes. Episode 6 especially got your attention. We got back to storytelling, and most of you really enjoy that. One housekeeping matter. I strive to be very accurate in the information we present, and I caught one of my own errors in the last episode that I want to correct. In episode six, I referred to the Warren Commission lawyer who deposed Buell Wesley Fraser as being named Bell, and that was a misspeak on my part. The Commission lawyer that deposed Wesley was another Wesley, Wesley Liebler. He actually was a bit of a character himself. Liebler had a reputation as a ladies' man, and apparently the witness pool was not off-limits when it came to seeking female companionship. There are stories about his pursuing at least two important witnesses, and one that was very prominent front and center in the narrative in the assassination story itself, but I'll get to that in another episode. As we begin today's Episode 7, I heard a solemn bit of news last night that relates to the JFK assassination We all know that the assassination happened almost 58 years ago now. Adults from that era have either passed away or they are reaching an advanced age in in their life. Last night, the widow of J.D. Tippett, the officer slain by Oswald, passed away in Dallas. Our condolences to the family. Sadly, one more witness is gone too. This episode seven is a bit of a teaser. It's not a storytell, but I'm prepping us for a few good storytelling episodes that we'll publish on Friday for the weekend. So there'll be plenty to listen to, no matter where you are or what the weather is looking like. It's going to be rainy here in South Florida. That probably makes for more episodes a little sooner. The title of this episode seven is, If You, Yourself, Were on the Jury. I wanna lay out a little bit of a construct. None of us, or at least most of us, are police investigators or forensic pathologists or even folks who study any of these crime elements in great detail, let alone for a living. What would happen if suddenly we found ourselves on a jury in the middle of a murder case and one that involved a shooting, any shooting, let alone the shooting of a president? When human life is involved, both for the victim and the accused, so much is at stake. Can you imagine what that might've been like had there been an actual trial surrounding the death of the president? So we would probably need a bit of a construct in our own minds, some sort of model for us to evaluate what we are listening to and determine how to assess and weigh the evidence, including its credibility. Let's engage in the following hypothetical exercise. Suppose two men got mad at each other and one decided to shoot the other in broad daylight and in plain sight of others. I'll call one man the victim and the other man the shooter. A rather bad circumstance for both the shooter and the victim, wouldn't you say? Well, anyway, let's say they're 25 feet apart and they're both facing each other at the time of the shot. And the shooter draws a pistol that was concealed behind his coat and then aims the gun straight at the victim and shoots and fires. The victim drops to the ground and then dies instantly. Five people within 25 feet are watching this entire thing unfold and so there are witnesses to every element of the shooting. The shooter stops what he's doing, then turns and looks directly into the eyes of each of the five witnesses and they look directly back into his eyes as he stands there for a time and they get a chance to record in their own minds exactly what he looks like. This is the man they saw just shoot the victim. One of the witnesses then rushes to the victim, and it happens to be that this witness is a doctor. He checks the pulse of the victim, and the victim is now clearly dead. The good doctor announces that fact to the rest of the witnesses and to others in the nearby crowd, a crowd that has now gathered because of the shooting. None of the five witnesses, nor the victim, nor the shooter have left the scene, and the entire event is now basically encapsulated. Everybody saw the same thing. And there are even more folks that have gathered in the crowd that are witness to the aftermath. Now, don't you think this would be an easy thing to figure out and prosecute and then decide as a jury? Five people will testify that they identified the shooter. He pulled the trigger. He shot the victim. The victim died instantly, and they all watched the good doctor confirm that the victim had expired. Five corroborating eyewitness accounts. Who needs to look at a gun? Who needs to look at the ammunition? Do you care if the shooter owns that gun? Do you care if the ammunition that came out of that gun is an exact match to what penetrated the body of the victim? Do you even care what kind of gun was used to kill the victim? You say that a prosecutor would still say that these things are important, but at the end of the day, a jury would still likely convict the shooter based solely on the clear eyewitness testimonies. Common sense at work, right? Even if you had a terrible prosecutor who didn't pick up the gun and place it into evidence, even if he didn't have an autopsy performed, and even if he didn't look at the ammunition, or he didn't check that gun to see if the ammunition matched, or if he hadn't known if the gun was owned by the shooter, and so on and so on. I mean, I could go on and on like this. You know what I mean. But, alternatively, start subtracting important things from that equation. So what happens if all the eyewitnesses go away? What happens if this all happened out in front of a bar and the five eyewitnesses, instead of watching this entire thing unfold, were at the valet, busy getting their ticket stamps so they can retrieve their car? And as a result, not one of them actually saw the shooter draw the gun and pull the trigger. All of a sudden, the rest of the forensic evidence becomes way more important in determining what actually happened here and in making a decision on what ultimately constitutes a conclusion beyond a reasonable doubt. Let's say those five witnesses turned immediately after they heard the shot and there's a shooter standing with a gun in his hand, although not pointed at the victim. That's still pretty good evidence, right? Well, let's just keep subtracting things for a minute. Let's say the shooter quickly tucked the gun back in underneath his coat jacket and that not one of those five witnesses, by the time they turned around, ever saw him, even with a gun, let alone pointing at or firing a gun while pointing it at the victim. What happens if this gentleman that we refer to as shooter looks just as surprised as the five witnesses. And then he runs to the aid of the victim as if to feign somehow his own non-involvement. And then in the chaos that ensued, he just leaves. Then later when the police arrive and there is no assailant in custody, and it's not clear who actually pulled the trigger. Well, now in this particular scenario, all of a sudden, the rest of the forensic and circumstantial evidence starts to get more than just very important. It's now essential in proving just exactly what happened and who did it in this case. So the idea of finding out who has the gun and matching the missile taken from the victim's body to that gun becomes very important. In fact, probably critical now to this case. Next, let's say later in the investigation, it leads them to a suspect and it's actually the shooter, but the authorities don't know that yet. So the authorities might get a warrant and search and that search might produce a handgun. And then the handgun might be subjected to a ballistics test. And then it becomes very important that there was a bullet taken from the autopsy and that the chain of custody of that bullet be well documented so that when the authorities compare that bullet to a bullet fired from this newly found weapon, that we can all be sure that they match and that we know with certainty the origins of these two bullets. Now, let's just say all of a sudden that those two bullets are a perfect match. Well, right now, again, the results of that ballistics test puts the shooter back in a pretty tough spot, even though no one saw him pull the trigger. This is pretty weighty evidence. While this evidence is not definitive, it's important circumstantial evidence that needs to be corroborated and supported in other ways with other evidence. Witnesses in this scenario can't testify that they saw him shoot anyone. But next, let's say he is placed in a lineup and several witnesses now identify him as being at the scene. The temperature of the water that this shooter is in is starting to get warmer. The weight and quality of the evidence cumulatively is mounting against him. Still though, there is room for error. So you see where this is all going. The reason I'm going through this exercise is that it's something we all have to think about as we begin to wade through the facts about this case. And I tell the story about so many things that affect the credibility and the weight given to various items of circumstantial and forensic evidence. Not one eyewitness has ever positively identified Lee Harvey Oswald as being JFK's shooter. You know, the guy that actually pulled the trigger from one place or another. No one was ever positively identified in a formal police lineup as being the shooter of JFK. So everything becomes based on the forensics and important circumstantial evidence. The relevance of these parts of the evidence in seeking the real truth become exponentially more important under these circumstances. Look, lots of people are convicted based solely on forensics and circumstantial evidence. But when they are, the weight and the quality of this evidence is generally much more substantial, much stronger than just what was present in the early stages of this investigation. When they declared that Oswald unequivocally was the shooter and that he acted alone, Hoover even made mention of the complications around evidence in a memo to the president a few days after the assassination, though still believing strongly that Oswald did it. When someone kills your president, you want the truth, the whole truth. After all, as Americans, we don't put people behind bars when we think they have done something. We want proof. We want due process. We want evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. This conversation is not about trying to mount a defense for Oswald. And I promise you, before this series is over, I'm gonna tell you what I think happened in this maze of mirrors, but you'll have to wait to the end for that. It's really about seeking the truth, listening to all the facts, listening to all the evidence that's been gathered, and then asking what's absent or conflicting in the presentation of facts as well. All of this has to come together in some logical construct. With so many critical elements missing in this case, it elevates the requirements to better understand all the available forensic and circumstantial evidence. Making matters more complicated is the fact that much of the evidence has been destroyed or is not complete or is sometimes just purely conflicting. So the need to dig deeper and learn more and apply more critical thinking remains essential. We are still doing that almost 60 years later. We are all forced to do this at least a little bit while we're listening to this podcast. Every life is precious, but today we are talking about the president of the United States, the most powerful person in the free world and the person accused of killing him. The weight of that, if you were on a jury, would be enormous. For that reason, I'm glad this is just a hypothetical circumstance and we're all just listening to a podcast. Stay tuned because going into the weekend, I'm about to publish another episode on The Rifle and Roger Craig and also the first of several episodes related to the Zapruder film. It's a couple more good story tells, and in the case of Roger Craig anyway, it's part of the mysterious happenings and circumstance that dot the landscape of this assassination history. I hope the wander we did here in Episode 7 will be of some help as we continue to unpack the conclusions contained in the Warren Commission report and review the evidence, both what was acknowledged by the commission and the evidence that was ignored or suppressed or just came about after the investigation, all of which is important. Our discussion this weekend related to the rifle is an especially good place to begin applying this construct model, including the credibility of the evidence gathered and the apparent inconsistencies around that topic that quickly developed. So everyone, I will see you over the weekend. Look for the new episodes late Friday afternoon. And remember, you can catch up with me at podcastjfk at gmail.com if you want to leave any comments or requests to be covered in later episodes. Thank you for listening to Episode 7 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.